uh, Anisha Dua, talk to us about EGPA. I've already introduced her, so I don't want to take any time. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everyone. Nice to meet all of you. Um, so uh, as, as Len introduced me, I am uh, currently at Northwestern. I'm running the vasculitis center there um, along with Amy Archer, and I was just at U of C running the vasculitis center there for the last five years. Um, so I'm going to talk to you guys today about eGPA. So um, that's my information, my disclosures, and learning objectives. So I'm going to start with background, um, and then I will go into overcoming some challenges in diagnosing eGPA, um, and then shift gears a little bit to talk about treatment, some current and future approaches, um, and end with collaborative care and management. So this is the slide you have to show if you're talking about vasculitis, and basically it's showing that we, different, we, we categorize our vasculitides based on the size of the blood vessel that's affected. EGPA, or eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, was previously referred to as Churg-Strauss, um, is part of the ANCA-associated vasculitides, which is a small vessel vasculitis, so affecting the small um, to medium-sized uh, blood vessels. It's a posimmune um, necrotizing inflammation, and it especially affects the lungs and upper respiratory tract. Um, so in terms of the pathogenesis of ankyovasculitis, there has been a lot of research looking into what triggers this, what makes our patients develop ankyovasculitis. And there is some evidence that there is genetic predisposition with specific HLA markers. Um, there's been some evidence looking into, or research looking into whether there's viral or bacterial, some sort of infectious triggers. Um, and of course, allergens like silica dust exposure or other sort of environmental exposures that might sort of trigger this process. And in, in my experience, it seems like it's sort of the perfect storm. So you've got some combination of these and your patient comes in and they, they were sick or something happened, they were under more stress and something tipped them over and started this process. Um, so what the process is, is really you have activation of neutrophils um, with expression of the proteins on the neutrophil surface and you get ANCAs binding. Um, and then the endothelial becomes more sticky. Your neutrophils migrate, stick to the endothelial wall, migrate through and start causing a lot more release of free oxygen radicals, inflammatory cytokines, and really causing destruction of that endothelial wall. So you end up with organ damage wherever those blood vessels are that are getting inflamed, and then you also end up with a feedback loop that sort of keeps this process going. Um, so classification criteria, what, what are the classification criteria for eGPA? These were initially developed in 1990, and I just want to highlight there is a difference between classification and diagnostic criteria, and we tend to use those interchangeably, but classification criteria were really developed to include people in clinical trials. So um, the classification criteria here are four or more of these. Um, asthma, eosinophilia of greater than 10% on the differential, a mononeuropathy or polyneuropathy, a migratory or transient pulmonary opacity detected radiographically, paranasal sinus abnormality, and of course our gold standard, what we love to have is biopsy, a tissue containing blood vessels showing the accumulation of eosinophils in extravascular areas. So, like I said, four or more of these has a sensitivity of 85% and a specificity of 99.7%. In 2012, the um, Chapel Hill group met and uh, tried to discuss the utility of ANCA um, and whether what role that should play in some of these criteria. And right now, there is a lot of discussion in the vasculitis community about trying to come up with more specific diagnostic criteria. So, who gets eGPA? It's usually middle-aged individuals, about 35 to 50 years old, with a history of new onset or newly worsened asthma. And it's about the same distribution between men and females, males and females. Um, this is a rare vasculitis. It about one, there's about one to three cases per 100,000 adults in the U.S., and the incidence is about 0.5 to almost seven new cases per million. Um, and it's obviously higher in asthmatic patients. Um, 
EGPA is different from the other ankylosteolitides, so that's MPA and, and uh, GPA. Um, there's severe asthma. Of course, there's blood and tissue eosinophilia. And the ANCA positivity in EGPA ranges from about 30 to 50%. So that's significantly lower than the other ANCA vasculitides. And usually that's an MPO or P-ANCA positive um, ANCA. So what are some of the clinical manifestations? Of course, we know vasculitis because it, it, you have inflammation of the blood, small blood vessels. It can really affect anywhere that these blood vessels are. So what organs are usually getting hit by this, this type of vasculitis? Some of them include paranasal sinus abnormalities, of course. So you have that allergic rhinitis, um, nasal polyps. You can get granulomatous inflammation around the eyes. You can get those transient pulmonary infiltrates, which I mentioned as part of the classification criteria on radiograph. Um, it's a little different than G GPA, or what we usually call what we used to call Wegner's, where you get really cavitary lesions in the nasal sinuses and also in the lungs. This is not quite as um, destructive lesions. Um, you can get different skin manifestations, so purpura is one of them. You can get nodular changes, and those are usually at areas of pressure points. Um, cardiac involvement, you can see there, that's our highest, the highest cause of mortality is cardiac involvement in these EGPA patients. Eosinophilia, like I said, on biopsy, um, and of course, nerve involvement with polyneuropathy or mononeuritis multiplex. So how does the disease progression um, impact patient like clinical and quality of life outcomes. We know this is a chronic disease um, requiring immunosuppression for control, and relapses are very common. So the organ involvement, as I just mentioned, is variable. Um, and what organs are involved obviously affects patients' quality of life. It seems to be, at least in studies, that nasal and asthma components tend to affect mental quality of life outcomes more. And of course, neurologic compromise is going to affect your physical outcomes. Um, with treatment, the one-year survival rate is about 90%, and the five-year relapse-free survival rate is 64%. So we are doing a good job of getting people into remission, but we're having, of course, trouble keeping them there and figuring out how much medication to use to keep them there. Um, and the principal cause of mortality, as I mentioned, is MI, secondary to coronary arteritis. And there was actually a study of, uh, like, 200 ankylovasculitis patients to see, you know, what their quality of life outcomes were. And one of the biggest risk factors, a significant risk factor for impaired quality of life was having EGPA within those ankyvasculitides and longstanding disease. So that's just a little bit of background so we know what we're dealing with in terms of clinical fit manifestations. And then I'm going to talk about some of the challenges we have in, in diagnosing EGPA. So this is just a, a differential diagnosis. And I'm going to go back um, later to sort of go through how, do we can, how we can rule some of these things out. But things that you're going to think about when you're approaching these patients are malignancy, um, infection, especially parasitic types of infections, um, the eosinophil-associated syndromes, which there's a lot of overlap with our EGPA manifestations, um, drug reactions, and of course the other vasculitides like GPA, MPA, polyarteritis nodosa, and even IgG4-related disease. Um, so I'll loop back to that uh, and talk about how we can rule out or try to rule out some of these after we talk a little bit about more characterization of EGPA. So I mentioned already, EGPA is different than its counterpart, other ankyvasculitides. Um, and one of those differences is that there's a lower percentage of ANCA positivity. Another reason this is important is in, in the vasculitis community overall, we are talking about whether we should be grouping these patients based on um, serologic subtype specificity versus their clinical manifestations. Because it seems to be there is a significant association between these antibodies and you know, prognostic factors, responses to treatment, and everything else. So, so there is discussion of that. And in EGPA specifically, when we're talking about ANCA-positive versus ANCA-negative EGPA, there are some different um, classic manifestations that you're looking for. So ANCA-positive, you're thinking of a more vasculitic phenotype. 
So you've got more mononeuritis, so nerve involvement, more purpura, and more glomerular nephritis, so renal involvement. Usually these patients need higher steroid doses and they tend to have a worse prognosis. The ANCA negative phenotype is thought of as eosinophilic, um, and these patients tend to have more what you would think goes along with that, refractory asthma, pulmonary infiltrates, and cardiac involvement, and they tend to have fewer relapses. Now that doesn't mean that somebody with ANCA negative disease can't have renal involvement, it's just these are just sort of patterns that we found between these types of groups of patients. So what are the stages? The first stage is a prodromal phase. So you've got asthma. This is present in about 97% of patients. You've got allergic rhinitis and nasal polyposis. Those are sort of your prodrome phases. This can precede the development of vasculitic symptoms by 10 years, or it can happen at the same time. So there's a, a real variability in terms of how someone's presenting to you. Um, it would be great if we were, could find ways to catch people right at that phase to prevent this sort of, you know, the arrows from moving down the path. Um, but that's sort of that first section. Another thing to keep in mind is those patients who have this asthma, we're treating them a lot of the times with steroids anyway, right? And so as, as they're pulling off the steroids or trying to, the, the, those steroids are probably masking or possibly masking some of the vasculitic manifestations. And as they get better control of their asthma and are off steroids, that might give the vasculitis a chance to sort of really come out and become more full-blown, which can tie into the idea of sort of leukotriene inhibitors and things triggering it. It might just be more that you're replacing those steroids and now the vasculitis is able to, to express itself. Um, the second phase is an eosinophilic infiltrative phase. So you've got peripheral eosinophilia, um, more than 10%, and this can go up to as high as 60%. And then you've got this tissue infiltration of the organ. So lung, heart, GI tract, all of these can be infiltrated. And this is where it becomes pretty difficult to distinguish it from some of the other hypereosinophilic syndromes. And then finally, the vasculitic phase, where you see your classic features of vasculitis. You have granulomatous inflammation and then clinical features that go along with sort of systemic vasculitis. So Diagnostic approaches, are there any blood tests or imaging studies or things we should be doing in our patients to sort of make this diagnosis or follow them over time? There is no specific biomarker for eGPA, and um, you know that's always something that we would love to have, and there's always research looking for those. Um, obviously, we look at our CBC and look for the differential, look for the eosinophil count and see if that's shifting. Um, ANCA serologies, but as I mentioned, those are only positive 30 to 50% of the time, but that can help you with the diagnosis. Uh, your inflammatory markers, your SED rate, your CRP, again, we all know those are super nonspecific, but those can help us tell you that there's some sort of inflammation going on, and we can use them sort of to trend someone's disease. Quantitative immunoglobulins, so you can see hypergammaglobulinemia, it's polyclonal and increased uh, levels of IgE, and that will play a role later when we talk about some of the treatment targets. Um, and of course, you're looking for renal involvement with your urine and, and, and um, metabolic panel. In terms of pulmonary involvement, you get a baseline CT chest. Usually, like I said, you're going to see those patchy bilateral infiltrates, less of those cavitary lesions that you see in Wegner's or GPA. Um, you'll get your pulmonary function test and spirometry at baseline and a BAL if it's indicated. In terms of a GI involvement, patients will come in complaining of, of ischemic symptoms, so significant abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, hematochesia, hematemesis. Um, you can do endoscopic evaluation or specific imaging for the abdomen, but um, routine screening of asymptomatic patients isn't recommended. And then, of course, cardiac function. Um, this is our biggest cause of mortality in these patients, so you want to get a cardiac echo, get your EKG, BNP, troponin. Um, sometimes we'll, you, we'll look for inflammation with cardiac MRI or PET scan, and they seem to be a little bit more sensitive, but you don't necessarily need to escalate therapy based on asymptomatic abnormalities, so it can also be a little bit overread, and, and you don't want to jump up with immunosuppression necessarily based on asymptomatic findings. And of course, your patient-specific workup. So if your patient comes in with weakness in an arm, you're going to do an EMG and, and check for nerve involvement. Um, 
So those are just some things. So looping back again to how to distinguish eGPA from some of the other things that we consider when we're making our differential diagnosis. So first, malignancy. Um, some of the ways that we can try to rule it out, obviously get a peripheral smear, smear look for dysplastic eosinophils or BLAS. Um, some of the features that go along with a neoplastic type of eosinophilia are hepatosplenomegaly. You can get thrombocytopenia from some myelofibrosis. Um, and of course, a lack of response to steroids are suggestive of neoplastic hypereosinophilia. You can check tryptase or B12 levels. Those are pretty sensitive for um, neoplastic hypereosinophilia if they're elevated. And then, of course, if your suspicion is quite high, you're going to get some of the genetic and cytology studies. Second thing, infection, as I mentioned, especially parasitic. Um, you want to get a, a thorough patient history. So um, toxicoriasis, you want to check their serology. It can cause a very asymptomatic, severe eosinophilia. Helminth infections, so ask them where their travel history is, what's their dietary habits, have they been eating a bunch of undercooked pork, are they walking around barefoot? I mean, these things sound silly, but they're really, you really need to, there's nothing that can replace that good history in terms of looking for risk factors for other types of diseases. Um, strong aloides can cause a severe hyperinfestation syndrome in, in steroid-treated patients, even decades after they got the infection, so you can check an ELISA for that, and your HIV and HTLV1 serologies. Eosinophil-associated syndromes. These are some of the hardest things to differentiate from eGPA um, because they're, like I said, in that second phase, there is so much overlap in the presentation. So one of the big things that, you can, that, that can cause eosinophilia and lung infiltrates and some similar presentations are ABPA, so allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Uh, you'll look for the antibodies, the IgE and IgG antibody, um, and you can look for serum IgE levels. If those are normal, you basically can rule out that diagnosis. Um, of course, you can check a BAL and look for the actual uh, aspergillus in the BAL. Two of the harder ones to differentiate are acute eosinophilic pneumonia and chronic eosinophilic pneumonia. Um, Especially with chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, you can get pulmonary infiltrates, you can get asthma, and you can get peripheral eosinophilia. So when you see those three things, you're obviously going to think about eGPA. That should be really high in a differential, and it's very difficult to differentiate those two. Um, so what you're really looking for here is the absence of other organ involvement and a negative ANCA. Again, half the people can have a negative ANCA anyway, but there aren't really great biomarkers to distinguish between these two at this point. Um, and as I mentioned, there's significant overlapping features. So there's no like location of infiltrates. There's nothing one. There's not one thing that we can tie our hat, on, you know, tie our diagnosis on. But um, if they have negative ANCA and they, or if they have a positive ANCA and they have vasculitic involvement, then that obviously is going to make you think more about eGPA than this chronic eosinophilic pneumonia. Uh, drug reactions. You want to get a thorough drug history. Um, some of the more common culprits are antibiotics, antimalarials, uh, anticonvulsant convulsants and PPIs, and then, of course, you want to differentiate it from the other vasculitides. So I mentioned some of them before, and a lot of this has to do with disease pattern recognition. Um, in GPA or Wegner's, you have more C-ANCA and PR3 positivity. You have more of those cavitary lesions, like I talked about, with pulmonary nodules, nasal crusting, erosive disease, um, more so than in eGPA. In MPA, you have rare eosinophilia, nodules or pulmonary infiltrates, and um, IgG4-related disease can also have actually allergic manifestations with eosinophils, pulmonary infiltrates. Um, and of course, really what we want to do is get a biopsy. If there's anything to biopsy, biopsy it. That will really help give you your diagnosis if you see eosinophils in the blood vessel, and then you really know what you're dealing with. Um, so with that information in mind in terms of you know, some of the phases of eGPA, what are some of the cl like clinical characteristics and things we're looking for, um, I'm going to move over into treatment, so current and future approaches. I'll talk a little bit about what we've used so far and then what's on the horizon in terms of possibilities. Um, so when, we're, when I'm thinking about vasculitis, I'm really thinking about 
induction and maintenance. Um, of course, these can overlap, and sometimes we're cycling through these, these again and again um, for patients who relapse. But in induction, we're really thinking about putting out the fire. So if you think of it as a huge fire in your, of your blood vessels, you're trying to put out the fire. And then in the second phase or maintenance, you're trying to keep it out without causing like a flood. And you're also trying to keep it out enough so that those like embers that are there don't flare back up. And that's kind of how I explain it to patients. Um, so in life-threatening disease, so a five-factor uh, five score of more than, one, more than or equal to one, and also in patients with significant organ involvement, so alveolar hemorrhage, nerve, compromise, um, eye involvement, really prednisone and cyclophosphamide are our first-line induction agents. And when you're, using, when you're looking at non-life-threatening disease, again, this is different than the other ankylvascular disease, prednisone can be used alone. In MPA and in GPA, we can, we, we're always thinking about using prednisone with another type of agent um, for induction, and in, in low disease severity, eGPA, we can use prednisone alone, and I'll talk a little bit about that data. So what, what are we doing? So steroids are basically like an umbrella. We all are familiar with steroids. It, they work great, they work fast, they work hard, they put out the fire, right? That's what we're trying to use them for. Um, and of course, they help control some of the symptoms of eGPA. But what we're trying to move towards, obviously, is a more targeted therapy based on what we've learned about the pathophysiology of eGPA so we can stop all of the miserable side effects that we know happen to our patients. So um, again, this is a lot of tech, but really what are they? We're, with these life-threatening diseases, you're gonna pulse your patients and then you're gonna put them on a mega per keg of prednisone and then you're gonna try to taper it, right, over time and see based on their clinical symptoms and everything else going on what can, how, how you can bring it down. But a lot of these patients are still requiring significant doses of steroids long-term, long into their disease. And side effects are infection, 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 and osteoporosis, cataracts, avascular necrosis, weight gain. I mean, I could, this list is like dot, dot, dot for a reason. There are so many side effects, right? So what can we use to try to replace that? Um, in terms of steroids, there was a, a CHU-SPAN trial which looked at um, the not as severe, or, or of eGPA patients so who had five-factor score of zero, so not very sick. Um, and the five-year survival was 96.8%. That's pretty good. But a third of those eventually required a cytotoxic agent. So again, steroids work, but there are definitely limitations. What's our other main induction agent, especially in those sick patients? Cyclophosphamide. Um, this is a very effective drug. We know that it has really changed the face of ankylvasculitis and turned it from really a, a mortality, a disease that will kill you, to a chronic relapsing type of disease. Um, and it can put people into remission. Up, over 90% will go into remission, but half of them have side effects. Um, so half of these patients with, that are treated with cytoxin are gonna have side effects. The side effects include cystitis, infertility, bladder cancer, lymphoma, infection again. Um, and even of all of those that go into remission, half of them are gonna have a flare-up in the next couple of years. So what, what can we do? Is there anything better? So again, our goals are prevent, control inflammation, prevent end organ damage, induce remission, minimize cytoxin exposure, and prevent relapses. So where, how, what are we doing? Where have we been? Where are we going? Um, this is not drawn to scale clearly, but you can see up until basically 2000, we were using steroids and cytoxin, right? And since that time, there have been so many trials, and this is just a smattering of them. So we, there have been a lot of studies really trying to figure out what's going on with these patients and what can we use to get them into remission and to keep them there. Um, unfortunately, for eGPA, a lot of those patients were not included in some of these huge studies. So it's important to remember that we're extrapolating data from, from trials that didn't even necessarily have this entire disease in, in, their, in their patient population. Um, in the purple, you can see some of the trials that specifically are either going on or have happened that um, focused on eGPA patients, and I'll go into some of those more specifically. 
So we'll talk about rituximab. We know that we are using it a lot more regularly nowadays to get our patients into remission, and now even more recently to keep them there with maintenance therapy using rituximab in angiovasculitis. Um, and this has been shown to be non-inferior to cytoxin in the RAVE and the rituxavast trials. Again, they, they did not include EGPA patients. Retrospective studies looking at EGPA patients um, did show that it, it is effective, especially in those ANCA-positive groups of EGPA patients. Uh, you had decrease in BVAS, which is your activity score, at a year and at two years. Uh, you were able to decrease your prednisone doses, but again, a lot of them were relapsing. So there was some, you know, so there's some information specifically in EGPA patients saying that it can be effective. But luckily, we're moving towards some randomized trials. So the RioVast trial is currently going on looking at rituximab induction specifically in EGPA patients. And of course, we're looking at remission and steroid sparing effect. Um, and then the main RITSEG trial is looking again at EGPA patients and looking at maintenance of patients who are in remission and trying to see if we can keep them there with rituximab versus azathioprine. So similar to what has been done in the other ankyvasculitis, we're actually trying to start getting some information specific to our EGPA patients. So hopefully that will help answer some of these questions about rituximab and its efficacy in, in EGPA. Um, azathioprine, there actually is a controlled trial in, in EG, that included EGPA patients. So this trial had um, EGPA, polyarteritis nodosa, and MPA uh, without poor prognostic factors. So these are not as thick EGPA patients, right? Uh, about 50 of the total, uh, almost 100 in the trial had EGPA. Again, it was looking at induction in non-severe disease. And the question was, if you use azathioprine with prednisone, are you going to do better than just using prednisone alone? Are you going to be able to get them into remission better, decrease their steroid dose better, um, anything like that? So that was really what they were looking at in this trial. And what they found was there was no difference in the relapse rate and there was no steroid sparing effect when you had patients in azathioprine plus, plus uh, steroid versus steroid and, and placebo. Um, about equal numbers in both of the groups had remission induction failure or relapses, and even the asthma or rhinositis, rhinosinusitis exacerbations were similar in both groups, even worse than the azathioprine. So azathioprine and steroids are basically equal. It's a tie between steroids alone. We don't want to waste our time screening for some of the toxicities of azathioprine, so in these cases, it really makes more sense to use steroids alone. So before I go into some of the more targeted trials, I'm just going to briefly go over some definitions because it really is important when you're looking back at trials to figure out what are we using to define remission, what are we using to define relapse, because this really changes whether these trials are really going to come out as positive or negative. Um, so remission, we know this is the goal. Um, absence of clinical systemic manifestations or minimal prednisone. Um, and one thing that's important to note in EGPA is that remission doesn't really, ex it excludes asthma and ENT flares. So activity with your asthma and activity in your ENT system doesn't go into that definition because it doesn't necessarily respond to immunosuppressive therapy the same as the rest of the vasculitic manifestations. Um, and then relapse, appearance, recurrence, worsening of clinical manifestations, um, of course, requiring an addition or an increase in steroids or other immunosuppressives. Um, relapse, you can have a relapse even if your eosinophil account is normal. So that's, you know, we use it as a, as a biomarker, even though we don't have a set biomarker, but it doesn't, you don't have to have an elevated eosinophil account to say someone is having a flare or a relapse of their disease. Um, when they do relapse clinically, most often these people are going to come back with pulmonary symptoms followed by ENT symptoms and then mononeuritis multiplex. And there is some evidence looking at risk factors for relapse in EGPA patients. So those that are ANCA positive are more likely to relapse. 
if they have cutaneous manifestations and a low, lower eosinophil count at the time of EGPA diagnosis. Those are risk factors for relapse, and you want to make sure that these high-risk patients are on maintenance therapy. Again, there's no specific biomarkers, so we're monitoring these patients clinically regularly. We're looking at their inflammatory markers. We're looking at their eosinophils. We're collecting whatever data we can to try to see if they're shifting into a relapse. Um, so with that, I'll go into sort of more of the targeted therapy and, and the therapeutic targets where, where we've been in the last couple of years. Um, when I used to see slides like this, my eyes used to like glaze over and I'd just be really overwhelmed. So I'm going to try to focus in on the stuff that I think is, is really relevant here and it's not really as complicated as all these things look. So um, we know that there's some sort of trigger, right? Allergens, some sort of perfect storm that tips these people off. And what that is, you have your, basically your antigen presenting cell getting some sort of antigen that wakes it up and makes it present to its T cell. So the T cell becomes activated and central here you can see, oh, I don't know if this is the pointer, but anyway, right in the center of this picture you've got your TH2 response. This is critical, this is the center of our eGPA pathway. So we know that there's TH2 activation in these patients. And those cells produce inflammatory cytokines, including IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. Those are important in triggering B cells to produce antibodies. Of course, ANCA antibodies, some of those other uh, gamma globulins that I mentioned become positive, like IgE. Um, and, and then it also causes a feedback loop. So you get hyperstimulation of this TH2 pathway. And then also with TH2, you get the IL-5 that I just mentioned, and that stimulates eosinophils. And we know that eosinophils are critical and central to this eGPA process. And I'm going to go a little bit more into that, and that's part of where these targeted, these targeted therapies play in. Um, again, a lot of text, but really what's happening here, as I mentioned, IL-5 has a really big role in um, proliferation, maturation, and survival of eosinophils. So when IL-5 binds to a receptor, on the eosinophil, you get this process, right? And so there's mepolizumab, which is a humanized monoclonal antibody that binds up that free IL-5 so it can't attach to its receptor, so you can't have this pathway going on. Um, and we know that levels of IL-5 are increased in patients with eGPA, and they are associated with disease activity. That, plus the fact that it was really effective um, as a maintenance therapy in severe eosinophilic asthma, um, kind of led to our understanding of maybe this could really work in, in eGPA in these patients. Um, so that led us to this MIRA trial, which was really a groundbreaking trial. Um, and it was one of, it's one of the few randomized control trials in eGPA. And it was looking at 136 relapsing or refractory eGPA patients who were induced into remission, and they were on, th on, base, on stable therapy prednisone dose. I mean, it could be a wide range, up to 50 milligrams and as low as 7.5, but stable dose prednisone for at least four weeks. Um, and they were randomized, basically, to receive mepolizumab or placebo, plus their standard of care. Uh, they used a 300 milligram dose of mepolizumab, and that was based sort of in the, um, on what was used with the allergic uh, eosinophilic asthma patients, and there are some people that are looking at different doses of, of mepolizumab and whether that could be effective. But regardless, they were either split into mepolizumab or placebo, and they were followed for a year. The outcomes that we were, they were looking at, not surprising. So the number of weeks in accrued remission, the percentage of patients that were in remission at time point 36 weeks and 48 weeks, the time to the first relapse, and of course their average steroid dose towards the end of this trial, so in the last month and a half of the trial. So. What did they find? They found that the accrued weeks of remission over this year period was significantly better in the mepolizumab patients. 28% versus 3% had more than 24 weeks of accrued remission. So overall in this year, you're having a lot more time where your patients are in remission um, if you're using the mepolizumab, in the group that used mepolizumab. Also at week 36 and 48, there were significantly more patients in remission. Um, 
here this is more of a graphical representation of the relapses. Um, it also met its secondary endpoints. So 44% in the mepolizumab group versus 7% in the placebo group had an average daily dose of prednisone less than four milligrams a day at the end of the trial. That's pretty low. I mean, like I mentioned, it's really hard to get these patients down off of steroids. Adverse events were pretty much similar across both groups, except for there were more headaches in the mepolizumab group. So things to note about this trial, half of those treated with mepolizumab still did not reach protocol-defined remission. So you can see the numbers there. So it did help, but they still didn't, um, it wasn't complete. So there's still room to go, of course, in terms of finding targets. No patients with life-threatening disease were included in this study. So that's another thing. When you're trying to think about when we should use this, and, you know, again, we've been using medicines where there were trials that didn't even include EGPA patients, so at least this was focused on EGPA patients, but it did not include life-threatening disease, at least in the last three months before they were enrolled in this trial. Less than 10% had, were ANCA-positive at baseline, so maybe some of the results might be a little more applicable to those who are ANCA-negative. Um, and there was a better response in those with elevated eosinophil count at baseline. Again, this makes sense based on what we know about IL-5 and eosinophils, right? So, so this is some just things to keep in mind when you're, when you're thinking about the trial. So mepolizumab beat placebo. It reached its endpoint, especially increased weeks in remission and decreased steroid dose. It was approved by the FDA as an add-on therapy in relapsing or refractory EGPA in 2017. Um, it is important to remember cost. This is always going to play a role when we're trying to figure out coverage and what to do with our patients. But basically, so in terms of emerging targeted therapies, that really was a breakthrough for us, and we have something new at our disposable that's actually been studied in our population that we're trying to treat with EGPA. Um, mepolizumab, like I just talked about, reslizumab is another anti-IL-5 antibody that is being studied in EGPA. And of course, like I mentioned, eosinophils are very central to this process, so if we can block the free IL-5, that's one target. Of course, if we can block the receptor, that's the other target. There are phase two trials looking at um, blocking the IL-5 receptor um, to try to improve disease control in EGPA. Another target, um, I, I briefly mentioned uh, IgE. Um, omalizumab is a monoclonal antibody that blocks IgE binding to mast cells. This reduces the recruitment and activation of eosinophils by, reduce, by inhibiting that TH2 response, which I already mentioned is central to this pathogenesis. Again, we are borrowing from our other colleagues. We have to. So we, we know that there's a lot of overlap between these eosinophilic syndromes and EGPA, right? So therapies that have worked in those patients, we're trying to borrow some of that information and apply them to our patients. It was shown to be effective in patients with severe allergic asthma. Um, and so we started using it in some of our EGPA patients. Again, this is a tiny trial, 18 patients. Um, but, you know, this is a rare disease. So we have to take what we can in terms of, of the trials, at least until we can get more information. Um, you could, we found, they found that there was a significant reduction in prednisone after a year. But again, it's hard to differentiate between responders because this is a small study. Um, so some take-home points on therapeutics. EGPA patients have not been consistently included in these larger randomized control trials evaluating therapy for ANCA vasculitis. We're using a lot of the information from those trials and applying them, but we have to just keep in mind that that's, that is a risk we're taking and we're, we're extrapolating data. Um, and in life-threatening disease, cyclophosphamide and steroids are still first line. Um, toxicities of our therapies and the disease itself, of course, can result in significant morbidity. Uh, and we now we have mepolizumab, which has been approved as an add-on therapy for maintenance in EGPA. And of course, uh, new therapies and new targets are being investigated. So we do have some hope on the horizon. So how do we put this all together and coordinate care? Um, 
against uh, across the care team. So this is not just a disease, it is a syndrome. It affects multiple organs, um, it affects patient quality of life. There was an EGPA task force that basically said that these patients should be managed in collaboration with other physicians and in centers with expertise in vasculitis. Um, so there was a group of 35 patients who basically their vasculitis was really well controlled, but they were having these chronic asthma symptoms and chronic, chronic pulmonary symptoms. And they found that half of these patients were not on an inhaled corticosteroid, which is, we know, we should know it's kind of standard for somebody with persistent asthma. Um, and most of them weren't managed by a pulmonologist. That's because a lot of times once they get this diagnosis, they're sort of pigeonholed into one provider that's their main person, and that's fine to be their main person, but collaborating with other specialties is, is critical um, in terms of really making sure we're, we're controlling all their manifestations. There was also a 20-year study of more than 100 EGPA patients that showed that expert disease management was associated with increased life expectancy and less disease severity. So it is important to get, when, when you aren't sure what to do, ask, you know, talk to other people. Um, there is nothing wrong with that. There's actually everything right with that. So who is your team? Who are you supposed to be talking to about these patients? It depends, obviously, on the organs that are involved, but it includes us, rheumatologists, pulmonologists, allergists, neurologists, if they've got nerve involvement, cardiologists, nephrologists, endocrinologists. You want to send these patients to physical therapy. These, this nerve involvement can be very debilitating. Um, so that is your team. And, and recognize your limitations as a clinician. It makes me think of that like old, you know, elephant story where everyone's blindfolded and you, you're sort of feeling what one part of the elephant and, and saying what the answer is and what you should do. And if you do it that way, if you manage these patients that way, you're just not going to be able to see the whole picture and treat the whole patient. Um, so if you get your team together and collaborate, uh, not only will you feel better and learn from your colleagues, you'll actually be able to possibly normalize their life expectancy and attenuate their disease progression. So it's really important um, to try to make these connections and, and step back and look at the whole patient. Um, so some of the difficult parts, there is no EGPA genome-wide association study. There's no clear animal model that's available, and we don't have one, a clear biomarker, right? So there is a lot of room for us to still discover a lot in this disease. Um, ideally, further research will help us identifying these biomarkers. So not only can we predict flares or predict disease activity, but also sort of to try to catch these people earlier and differentiate them from those other eosinophilic syndromes or even markers that can say this person with severe asthma and some eosinophils is at high risk of developing these, these vasculitic manifestations down the road. What can we do up front to take care of it? Um, so earlier recognition of the disease and better understanding of the pathophysiology, collaborative care will all help us to get towards better outcomes for our eGPA patients. So where are we going? I hope that I've sort of given you an idea of where we've been and some of the places that we're trying to go with our eGPA patients and some of the studies that are under exploration right now. This is a marathon, not a sprint. This has been a long pathway. I showed you up until the 2000s, there wasn't a lot of new activity and there's so much more happening. So it's actually a really exciting time in vasculitis. It's, it's awesome how much is being discovered. Um, but there, every time we discover something, there's like 500 more questions about toxicities and how long we should keep these patients on these drugs. And you know, every discovery leads to eight more questions at least, many more. Um, so it's a marathon, not a sprint. And with that, I will take questions. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah. What about black and white? What about black and white? Sorry? What about black and white? So yeah, I think those are definitely in the, now, now that we're learning, yeah, I think those will be in the works. Um, I think IL-5 has been more studied in the allergic, especially in the eosinophilic side with asthma and pulmonology and allergists. So, so drug-wise, drugs that have been developed that we can sort of uh, 
you know, that's what we've tended to do in terms of our treatments, try to adopt and, and take some stuff from other people. So I know that there's been a lot there, um, but I think that those are going to, now that we know more about the pathophysiology, I think there's going to be more targets looking at that. Yes. Right. That's a very good question, and we don't have an answer. Um, so, you know, the question become though, exactly. So now we have mepolizumab; it's at our disposal. Is it best to keep them on the same dosing, or do, like, is there any benefit of using lower doses? Because some people are looking at that because you know you can use down as low as seventy-five milligrams. There's 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 a possibility of dose reduction. There's a possibility of spacing it out. Or do you just stop after, you know, two years and say maybe they're out of the window, let's see how it goes. And we, because there's been so few trials in, in this population specifically, we don't have straight answers. What I would do is watch their disease status, and obviously your eosin fills are going to be suppressed, and hopefully you'll be getting them down off of prednisone. Um, I tend to um, think it makes sense to, to sort of either pick one or the other. So space out or dose reduce, it's easier to probably stick with the 300 milligram dose because that's what's been approved. And I would probably think space out slowly after, but I would keep them in maintenance therapy doing well without any signs of flare. And I usually say for at least two years before, again, it's a patient to patient, but I usually feel more comfortable after at least two years of treatment to start thinking about pulling back, spacing out or doing something like that. Right, thank thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me.